I've had a difficult week. And I hate difficult weeks. You know why? Because they're difficult. Am I unique in this? Who, who loves a difficult week? Come on. Let's see. No, no hands. Here's the main statement in Peter, around which the entire epistle is built. We're going to get it this morning. And you know what he has to say? It's difficult to be saved. I wish I had a triumphant sort of your best life now kind of message, but it's not. It's real. It's in the Bible, and it says it's difficult. Now, have you ever thought that in your life? Man, following Jesus is hard. Have you ever said to yourself, I don't like this? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Okay, I see that hand. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of time. Difficult things take a long time. Have you noticed? It takes a lot longer than you think. And you have to learn and practice when you're doing something difficult. It's not something like an iPhone where a, a, a six-month baby can go like this and, and get it. It's hard. And then the worst part about difficult things is you have setbacks when things go wrong. They're going in the opposite direction. And you sit there and you go, this is so wrong. This is hard. And it's so easy to get discouraged doing something difficult. So if following Jesus and being a Christian is that difficult, why in the world would you do it? And the answer that Peter gives is that it is worth it. I found that very difficult things are difficult because they're worth it. All right? So, we're reading in 1 Peter 4 from verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So this one is all about difficult. 
And this being a Christian is difficult because it is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And this does not refer to Jesus dying for our sins because only he could do that. Only he was sinless. Only he could take our sins upon him. We don't enter into that. That's nothing we could touch. Doesn't belong to us. But this is the suffering that he endured for being a righteous man, living in a fallen, sinful, wicked world. Now, in the Beatitudes, Jesus talked about what a righteous person looks like. And we read those before we got going in the study. And when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about somebody who does not have what it takes to get to heaven. That if you were to say, okay, do it right now. Get to heaven. He would say, can't. I have nothing. I am unacceptable to God. That's where a righteous person starts. A righteous person knows he can do nothing to save himself. Doesn't try to justify himself. And a righteous person acknowledges that the real problem is his sin against God. Blessed are those who mourn. You're mourning because my sin condemns me. I am the problem. Not her problem, her problem, that problem, global warming, you know, oceanic pollution, and Black Lives Matter. It's not somebody else's fault. It is my fault. It's my sin. And the righteous person completely submits to God. Blessed are the meek. Not somebody's going out there and saying, I'm going to take it, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to work on it and get it. Just says, you know what? You got to fix me, God. You got to fix me. And he says that Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be fulfilled. A righteous person is fulfilled from above. Not because I had a fabulous pizza dinner, or I won the lotto so I have a ton of dough, or any other earthly thing satisfied from above because God gave me perfect righteousness and now I've got peace. He says, blessed are the merciful. And that means a righteous person doesn't condemn anybody because that's taking God's job. I'm not doing God's job. I can't even do my own job. So instead of condemning and hating and saying, I can never forgive that person. A righteous person says, you know what? I forgive you. I forgive you. I give mercy. You know why I give mercy? Because God gave me mercy. And I know what mercy feels like, and it feels fabulous. So you know what? You have no clue. You don't even know what you're doing. Forgive you. A righteous person is pure, free from everything that defiles and pollutes. And a righteous person loves purity, hates what pollutes. So different from in this world because a dog always goes back to his vomit and eats it. 
But a righteous person cannot go back to his vomit. Something in him says, God, kill me if I ever go back to that vomit. And you, you have this drive to be pure. Unlike everybody around you who is saying, you know, let's go for another big round of vomit. Now, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. And a righteous person is somebody who's made peace with God through the blood of Jesus. Because apart from the blood of Jesus, there is no peace for the wicked. Now, you know, there's lots of people trying to make peace. They're saying if we take on global warming and really cut our carbon footprint, we're going to have peace. And if we get rid of racism, we'll have peace. And if we are all over the boundaries with our sexual identities, we're going to have peace. Everybody accept everybody right now. But a righteous person says, you know what? There is no peace until there's peace with God. And everything else is completely inadequate, useless, waste of time. Only somebody who's in tune with God is going to be in tune with somebody else. And when that happens, when you make peace with God through the blood of Jesus, of course black lives matter. See? That's not even an issue anymore. So, the last beatitude is so difficult because it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's like, what? But this is where the world pushes back against a righteous person and says, you're wrong. What you're saying is that Jesus is exclusive, and there's nobody else. Which means there's no other system, no other religion, no other philosophy, no truth, no political system, nothing by which we can be whole and have peace and be blessed. And the world pushes back and says, no. We're going to fix everything. Our problem is we don't have enough space on the planet. We're going to go to Mars. We're going to fix that. We're going to fix all pandemics. Everybody's going to get vaccinated or else. We're going to fix it. We're going to fix everything. Because what you're telling us is, is we're incapable. And that's not true. We are capable. I'll tell you what we're capable of. We're capable of treating you badly because we don't agree with you. You're wrong. And then the push is, hey, there's seven billion of us and there's one of you. You're really right? How can you be right and all of us be wrong? So here's the pushback. No, that's not true. No, Jesus is not the way. And, you know, if your system, your philosophy, your religion allows you to make war against people you don't agree with, that's wrong. Do you get that? Now, what this is saying is that the world says we don't need God. We don't want God. We're going to fix everything on our own. Now, that's difficult right there, isn't it? But then Peter's command, how we are to deal with that, that's difficult too. Look what he says. 
In verse 12, he says, don't think it's strange concerning this fiery trial. And in the, in the original language, it can be better translated, stop thinking it's strange. That means Jesus' suffering belongs in your life. It's not like, what? How can I be suffering? Peace, love, happiness, joy in the Holy Spirit. What? This doesn't belong. Get thee away from me, Satan. We can't do that. You have to realize it from the very get-go. This suffering belongs in my life because I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, that suffering of his is now mine because he has made me a righteous person. And he says here that Jesus' sufferings are a fiery trial that are going to try you. This is not if you're going to make it. Well, we'll just sit back and see how you do in the fire there. Ooh, a little hot there. Don't know if you're going to make it, but let's roast you a little more and see how you do. It's nothing to do with that. Because, you know, we're accepted in the beloved. The fiery test is actually to purify our faith. You know, they, our faith is compared by Peter to gold. He says it's more precious than gold. It's more precious. It gets you to heaven, whereas gold does not get you to heaven. That's valuable. So, but gold in a rock is not valuable. It's potentially valuable. But you got to get rid of the rock. That's unwanted and unvaluable. So what you do is you stick it in a crucible, which contains it all, and then you apply lots of heat underneath, and it makes it liquid, and the gold separates from the scum, and all the scum comes to the top, and you scrape that off, and what is left is purified, and now it's free from impurity, and it's valuable. So, that's one thing that's going on, and why Jesus' suffering is a part of your life. No fire, no purification. Your faith remains immature. It remains incomplete and loaded with lots of junk that you don't need. But then here's the other command. Verse 13. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. So every time somebody puts you down because you believe in Jesus, you go, thank you, Lord. Every time you lose your job because of your witness, you go, Praise the Lord. Now, have you ever found that one easy? That's counterintuitive. My initial reaction is to go, oh no, I'm going to die. But Peter says rejoice. It's a command. Every time you suffer for the name of Jesus, rejoice. And he says why? Because when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. That is, every time you suffer for Jesus, you are adding to your eternal joy and bliss. No one of us is going to be sorry that we suffered for Jesus when he's revealed. The only thing we're going to regret is that we did not suffer more when we could have. Do you see that? Because it's all going to be paid back. We're all going to enjoy the glory of being revealed with Jesus 
who suffered in the same way. So we go, yes, we suffered for what is right. We're being vindicated. But we can rejoice right now. Just like the apostles, they were threatened. Do not preach anymore in this man's name. And they beat them and they let them go. You know what the disciples did? They go, we were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Yes! And of course, the Sanhedrin is going like this. <sighs> They're not listening. But the point is, yes, they are listening. Because Jesus says, when this happens to you, be glad and rejoice because great is your reward in heaven because that's the way they treated the false prophets who were before you. The Spirit of God rests upon you. You are the real thing. That's what he says in verse 14. Blessed are you. And you know, Peter heard Jesus say that on the Sermon on the Mount. He heard it. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kind of things about you falsely for my name's sake. He heard that and he says, you know what? It's true. If you're reproached because you believe in Jesus, if people diss you and act really badly toward you, he says, you can rejoice. You just added to your future glory. You are blessed right now because you're authentic. You are the real thing. You're not a make-believe Christian. You're not hoping that somehow you're going to make it. You know. The Spirit of God and of glory rests upon me. Well, it's a blessing, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's difficult to be unashamed for Christ. You know, in verse 15, Peter says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. Or a busybody. Did you notice that? Okay, murderer. I can get that. But a busybody? Really? A Budinsky? Somebody who has, you know, a better idea how to run your life than you? That's obnoxious. But you know, some people treat Jesus like he has no business being in my life. Get away from me. And of course, you've had that treatment too. You've witnessed to somebody and they just tell you, shut up. I remember one incident, and I was sitting on a bus talking to the guy next to me, and the guy just let me have it and got off the bus. So I turned to the guy next to me, and he looked at me and he said, don't even talk to me. Shrinking in real time. Oh, he's so tiny. Look at him now. You know, that's the way people treated Jesus. And you'll notice that when people asked him to leave, he left. He didn't stand his ground and go 15 rounds in a debate and really argue them into the dust, you know? He just said, okay, I'm done. And he left. So he wasn't that kind. And if, with all the other things, he didn't come to take life, he came to give life. And he's good, he's not an evildoer. And again, he's not the devil. He didn't come to steal from you. He doesn't want your money. That's not where we're doing this. But you can suffer as a Christian. As a Christian. You know this name is only used three times in the whole New Testament? 
It's not what the Christians called themselves. Do you know where they got the name? It was in Antioch. And all these Gentiles were becoming Christians. And you know, everybody else started noticing these strange people. Have you run into them? Oh, yeah. There's something else. These Christians. Yeah, that's funny. It was kind of a slam word. Hey, I ran into a whole herd of Christians. Oh, my God, they, you did? And it's kind of like in the 60s and 70s, it was cool to call Christians Jesus freaks. Oh, you're a Jesus freak. Oh, help. And the Jesus freaks thought it was kind of cool. So they, <laughs> they go, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak. It happened in the 17th century with John Wesley and George Whitfield. And they had what they called a holy club. And they were absolutely determined to follow Jesus. And they were systematic about it. They were disciplined about it. And you know what they got called by some wit there in Oxford? Methodists. Have you run into the Methodists? OMG, did I ever. LOL. Well, who do they think they are, those Methodists? Hey, Methodists! And the name stuck. So guess what? They called themselves Methodists, and they wore it like a badge of honor. Methodist, Jesus freak, Christian. But you know what Paul is, or Peter is saying here? When you murder somebody, you need to be ashamed. You're not cool. You should be ashamed of being a thief an evildoer, a busybody. You need to get your nose out of other people's business. Show some shame. Shh, shh. But you know, if somebody gets in your face and calls you a Christian, stop being ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of being called a Methodist. Don't be ashamed of being called a Jesus freak. Don't be ashamed of that. Stop being ashamed of that. Don't take anything off of anybody. Because you don't have to accept that person's opinion of you. They don't approve of you. That is tough. You're not doing anything wrong. And in fact, you're to be courageous and you are to do what is right so that that name earns respect. And this is also the interesting thing, that the Christians became legitimate. It took about 300 years. But even Constantine, when he became emperor, he proclaimed favor to the Christians because the Christians were the only ones holding the Roman Empire together. There was only stability in the Christians. In the 1700s, the Methodists were the only thing that saved England from going the way of France. With the revolution and the reign of terror, where they were guillotining people every day because they're going to get rid of the enemies of the state. 
And it was just chaos. Kill everybody who doesn't agree with us. Kill them who do. Let's kill everybody. England didn't go that way. You know why? Because so many people got saved. So many people had peace with God that they had peace with one another. And they didn't throw off the monarchy and make hell on earth. You know, I've got a book in my library called England Before and After Wesley. And it details what the society was like before Wesley came. And it was brutal. It was sexually immoral. It was rotten. It was oppressive. And after the Methodist revival, it was like a whole new country. England brought out of the gutter, out of the sewer. And the fruit of that Methodist revival actually went out to the entire world. The fruit of the Methodist revival resulted in the evangelization of the world. And the Christians earned a name for themselves by doing good. Um, we'll expand on this in a minute. But that's an uphill battle, isn't it? From being disdained to being, you know, they're weird, but they're good. Here's another thing that Peter says is difficult. It's difficult to pass the judgment of God. He says in verse 17, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now it's true that when you become a Christian, you pass out of judgment into life, right? Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So somebody who believes in Jesus already knows right now, I am going to stand in the judgment. I already know that I'm going to go to heaven. I know that God accepts me right now as I am. But at the same time, every Christian finds that you have entered into judgment. Suddenly, judgment is in every area of your life. Have you noticed? This is the right thing to do. That's the wrong thing. You just did the wrong thing. You did the right thing. Well done. Careful. You're about to do the wrong thing. And you know, don't you? Ah, that's good. That's, that's good. Don't, 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 don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. No! And you're living with judgment every day. It's like, whoa, I can't get away from it. Judgment. Right. Wrong. This is the way to go. Don't do that. Don't you find that difficult? When, when is my off time? When can I punch out and just not do anything? But it's not like that. It's 24 hours, isn't it? You know you're sleeping wrong. Have you not noticed? Now look. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us we are all going through fire. Here's what it says. Uh, verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. 
For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Now the foundation in your life should be the Lord Jesus. If you have received him, he is the foundation in your life. If you have not received Jesus, you have no foundation in your life, period. Now he's not going to burn. And if you've received Jesus, now you're building your life on him. You're building. What are you building with? The problem with wood, hay, and stubble is they're cheap, and they're all burnable, and they're all things that are not acceptable to God. They're sin, wickedness, um, cowardice, things that won't stand in the judgment, willfulness, arrogance, pride. All right? But gold and silver and precious stones, these things survive fire. These are the things that are acceptable to God. Humility, submission to God, doing his will. Now that's costly, isn't it? Because you have to deny yourself to do the will of God. You can't say yes to God and to yourself at the same time. Yes to all of us. Yes, we're going to... No, you can't. Every time you say yes to God, you're saying no to yourself. Every time you say yes to yourself, you're saying no to God. Now, at this point, everybody is thinking, man, this is difficult. And you're right. It's really hard. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. In fact, I've come to the conclusion, this is heavy, I can't do this. I have confessed that so many times. I cannot do this. It's not just difficult, folks. This is impossible. Cannot be done. But, you know, you ought to feel that way. When you feel like, I can't do this. Actually, you're on the right track. Because you can't do this by yourself. You have to do this with Jesus. It is a relationship, not a religion. A religion is, if you work hard enough, then you get what you're supposed to get. That's the contract. But when you have relationship, then Jesus does all the things that you cannot do. You cannot die for your sin. He did that. You cannot rise from the dead. He did that. You cannot stand in the judgment. But he can. And he's going to enable you. And you know how he does it? Right now. Right now, the judgment has begun with the house of God. And you're getting that input into your life that says yes and no. You open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. You say, okay, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. You tell me what's the matter with me. Because we're not supposed to diagnose ourselves. You know why? We get it wrong. You know what my big problem is? I'm gaining weight. And I have significant premature hair loss. And my breath smells bad. So if I lose weight, get more hair, and get a mouthwash, all my problems will be solved. I'll get a girl, and then dot, 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 we'll be happy. Those aren't your problems. If you try to diagnose your problem, you'll always get it wrong. 
But if you come to Jesus and say, search me, try me, know my heart, you know what? He's going to tell you what the problem is. And then he's going to save you. That's how you deal with things. And see, that's what Peter says for us to do. In the face of all this difficulty of living in judgment, of saying thank you every time somebody reproaches me for being a Christian and says, shut up. Or just being hard. You know, Paul had a a thorn in his flesh for the sake of Jesus. Some physical problem that he could not get rid of and when he prayed about it, God said no. I'm going to leave it there. You need to be weak so that I can be strong. He says, okay. See, there's even more glory there. So you can bring all your weaknesses to God, all of your failures, everything, and commit your soul to your faithful creator. That's ultimately what Peter is telling each one of us right now. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now, you know, if you trust in Jesus, he's making you righteous. And because he's making you righteous, you're going to get pushed back from people. Your family may not accept you. Your work colleagues might let you know that you are definitely strange. We certify you. You are strange. You don't belong here. You're not one of us. People are going to push back and say, nope, I don't believe a word of this stuff, and you're stupid. Not in so many words, but when you boil it down, they're telling you, you're a clonk, you're stupid. This is not true. Well, how do you live with this? Peter says, commit your soul to him. Now, you know why he says creator? Creator. That's because God created you. He thought about you before he made the world. And he made you for this time with your temperament, your personality, your situation, your difficulties. He made all those. And he loves you. Did you notice? The very first word in verse 12 in every translation is beloved. Now you thought I forgot about that word, didn't you? No, I didn't. I was saving it for the punchline. And the punchline is he loves you. That's why he made you. And he made you so that you would be revealed with Jesus in glory. That is why he made you. And he is going to get you there. It is not acceptable to lose one. He didn't think about you and create you to all of a sudden fumble you at the last second and go, dang, lost another one. That's not why you exist. He created you that you would be transformed into the image of Christ that when Christ is revealed, then you will rejoice with absolute joy. That's why he made you. And you know, it is difficult. 
being a Christian will crumble you into dust. So that God can remake you and you will stand before him blameless with great joy. That's where you're headed. So you know how you respond to all this difficulty? You commit your soul to him. And that word commit is the word that Peter heard when Jesus was crucified. And he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And it's the word used for depositing money in the bank for safekeeping. They're not going to lose it. Now, you know, you've heard Jesus say, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust eat and thieves break in and steal. Lay up your treasures in heaven. And that's about money, the M word, money. Use it for God, because if you don't, it's going to burn. That's just a, a free advert. But you know, just like you can lay up money in heaven, you can lay up your life in heaven. And you do that by doing good. You give money to the Lord, you're laying that up in heaven. You lay out your life by doing good, you are laying up your life in heaven. Do you get that? And as you invest by submitting to Jesus and saying, I am entrusting my soul to you as to my faithful creator, then you invest your life and you're saying, I am doing this because you're telling me to do this. To be merciful, to do good, to be pure, to commit my weariness to you and my sickness to you and everything I have and all that I am to you right now, you are laying up your life in heaven. So is this difficult? Of course it is. There is nothing more difficult on the planet. And what you want to do is do good. And take that name Christian and not make it a swear word, but make it a word that commands respect. For example, in China, I read this story about how the rice farmers are supposed to give a certain amount of rice to the state. And what the farmers typically do is they're required to give a certain amount of weight. And what they do is they take the sack and before they fill it with rice, they put rocks and dirt in the bottom. And then fill the rest up with rice. It weighs what it's supposed to. They take the rest of the rice and sell it on the black market. So everybody knows this is what you do to get by. But you, what they found out was that the Christians never give dirt and rocks to the point where all the government official knows that if that Christian farmer brings in a sack that weighs X amount, every bit of it is rice. Don't even have to check. They know. These guys don't lie. I have no use for them personally, but they do bring in the rice. Get that? Or the big philanthropical organizations. Who's the first on the scene? Guys like Samaritan's Purse? Christians. Why do they do it? Just because God loves you. Jesus Christ is God. They're not ramming it down anybody's throat, but everybody respects Samaritan's Purse because they know these guys are the real deal. They really are. And see, this is what we do. 
We invest our lives. We do what's good. We make that name Christian mean something and glorify God in it. Now, nobody is sufficient for this. So if you feel insufficient, you're right on the money. If you feel like, I can't, I can't do this. You're asking too much. Here's how you face it. You say, okay, God, here I am. No deals. I'm not holding back anything for me. Because whatever I hold back for me is wood, hay, and stubble, and it's going to burn, burn, burn. And that's where I'm headed. So here I am. And I'm going to let your Holy Spirit tell me off. I'm going to let your word judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Have you ever had the Bible tell you you were wrong? I was telling the guys on Thursday night about one time that God nailed me. And you're going to laugh at me. But I was in Japan for a year. And this was my big chance to find the real thing. Astro Boy comics. And so I'd go to used comic stores and say, do you have Tetsuwan Atomu? Actually, I say Astro Boy in Japanese. And they just go, oh, and pull out Astro Boy. And I go, wow, this is cool. And you know, God put on my heart, I don't want you fussing with that. And I go, it's comic books. Who cares? It doesn't matter, does it? It's just a little thing. Well, um, let's see if I can find it. Oh, Lord. Right. I'm doing my regular reading in my Bible, minding my own business, being a good Christian. <laughs> and then God focuses my attention. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Verse 18, I'm just breaking in the middle of what Moses is saying. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord to go and serve the gods of these nations that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood, which is poison, that kills. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. So I've got these Astro Boy comic books. I only got three of them. And God says, I want you to get rid of them. And I say, no. And then I go out and play Christian concerts and tell everybody about Jesus. But he, he just, he says, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm smashed or if I'm sober. God says, it matters. And it says in Hebrews 4 that the word of God has the power to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart, to divide soul from spirit, joints from marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When I read that, I thought, okay, I got two choices. 
One is pretend I never read that. And two, quit pretending there's no difference between a drunkard and a sober person. And I threw those things away. That was hard. It was really hard. And somebody could look and say, you know what? That's not a big deal. It's just comic books. But here's the problem. It's idolatry. Anything that swerves your heart from obedience to God is another God. And the guy that drew these comics is called Kamisama no Manga, the God of comics. He's like Disney and Steven Spielberg all rolled into one. Asuma Tezuka. And Tezuka is like God there. They actually call him that. And I was saying to God, no. I want to hold on to the God of comics. And in your life, it might look just as microscopic. But if you say no to God, you're wrong. You're an idolater. Do you get it? So look at us. We're all in judgment right now. And here's the only way to deal with it. Here I am. I shall have no other gods before you. And you know, that's what Jesus says. The devil says, hey, I got all the kingdoms of the world. All you got to do is bow down before me. I'll give them to you. And Jesus says, no. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So if we're in Christ, the Spirit of Christ is going to help us. Jesus does that difficult job of saving you. Does everybody get that? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are kind and that you are severe. Severe because what you demand of us is too difficult and we can't do it. Kind because you want to do it in us. And we get to be your dwelling place where you are glorified and worshipped and there are no other gods. We thank you, Lord, that you are preparing us for eternity with joy. And we're not going to regret any of the decisions we make now. When we yield to you, when we surrender to you, when we depend on you, when we cry out to you. So Lord, we, we want to yield ourselves today. We want to give up our lives, our futures. We want to give you our cares and our worries our sins, our diseases. Everything that we have and all that we are, we want to yield to you right now. Commit our souls to our faithful creator because you love us. Help us to not be ashamed. but to glorify the name of Christ. Help us to rejoice in our suffering, trusting you. Does anybody need to respond to God this morning? Does anybody need to receive Jesus? If you do, just let me know after the service. But you can pray, Lord, I have not submitted myself to you.
I have not received Christ. I know I'm not going to stand in the judgment. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that he went into heaven. And I believe he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Please save me. Please prepare me for that day. Please prepare all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.